everyone. Welcome to today's episode of MD Talk. I'm LaQuinta, your host. And for this episode, I am absolutely delighted to be joined by my colleague, the Executive Vice President of Patient Services for MD Group, Caroline Jackson. With over 27 years experience in the clinical research industry, Caroline has brought a wealth of knowledge and understanding of the clinical development process to our patient services department. Caroline has helped our clients embrace new technologies and develop innovative decentralized solutions for clinical trials, ultimately resulting in better patient care, increased participant diversity, and decreased dropout rates. Caroline, welcome to the show. Thank you, LaQuinta. Thank you for the introduction and for inviting me to join you today. I'm, I'm really excited to be discussing with you some of the key topics that really brought me to MD Group almost two years ago. Um, as you mentioned, I've been in the industry for, for, for more years than, than I care to remember in a variety of roles, um, clinical project management, site management, proposals, contracts, vendor management. And, and although I've always been mindful of the fact um, that we are working in, in, a, in, a, in a research environment um, and that all of my roles have had an impact on participants of the trials, um, it can be hard in that day-to-day -day rush of activities to, to really appreciate the impact that participating in research has on people and their caregivers. And so working here, it really, we really do put patients at the forefront of everything that we do. Um, and at an exciting time in, in, in the industry where, where there's more appetite for change that, than I've seen in my entire career, I'm really happy to be in a position where we are working with teams to provide options and services for patients that, that really do make a difference. So I'm looking forward to, uh, to talking a little bit more about some of those topics today. You and I both, and I'm just excited because Caroline, I've had the privilege of working with you um, in multiple roles. Um, and this is by far my greatest privilege to call you my colleague. So I'm super excited to be sitting here with you today um, and looking forward to the show. And for all of you listening today, Caroline and I will be discussing how hybrid clinical studies allow for a more nuanced approach to clinical trial design, keeping patients' needs at the forefront. The benefits of hybrid studies compared to both traditional site-based or fully decentralized trials the types of barriers hybrid studies help study organizers and patients overcome, and how technology supports a hybrid approach, but why it's not a fix-all solution. So to kick the conversation off, I just want to share um, a few statistics that I think will be really um, beneficial for our discussion today. Research suggests that 40% of clinical trial participants drop out before the study is complete. And failure to recruit and retain patients in a clinical study can cost between $600,000 and $8 million per day. Two-thirds of study sites fail to meet their enrollment targets. A study into patient engagement found that patients reported traveling to and from a site as the most burdensome element of clinical trial participation. Um, and this one always gets me the most because traveling to and from a site seems to be the easiest aspect of participation, but yet it can be the most burdensome one and one that's really easy to fix. So I want to kick us off by asking you a question about decentralized clinical trials. Right now, the industry is buzzing with the talk of DCTs. However, in many cases, a hybrid approach is often best for the patient and the protocol. Um, why is this and what do we mean by hybrid clinical trials exactly? So, LaQuinta, so, so, so most study protocols and study designs, they, they have elements that can be safely and effectively conducted in the home. But most still have complex components where the face-to-face -face contact and physical attendance at a site is, is necessary. 
we're working in an environment where the, the components of decentralized trials, there's, there's nothing that's radically new there. The services and technologies to allow the decentralization of some aspects of clinical trials have been around for, for a long time. Mobile health, for example, has been available for over 15 years and ECOA has been around for a very long time in various formats. But we didn't really use it to the uh, to, to the extent that we should have done. Um, COVID, as we, we, we know, really did um, throw things into the forefront um, and sites were looking for flexibility around how they manage patients and sponsors were willing to look at non-traditional ways to be managing patients um, in order to continue, uh, continue studies. So, you know, the patient centricity side of things, a lot of people have been talking about this in addition to, to DCT for a, for, for a long time. Um, the services and technology that, that comprise decentralized solutions really help to widen that patient pool and allow more remote assessments and really reduce the burden on the patients. Um, but that's only part of the story. Um, as you mentioned, LaQuinta, one of the key challenges that we have is around the travel. And as an industry, we need to get better at supporting patients when they need to attend the site. Otherwise, that inconvenience and the expense that the patients incur can lead to the decision to withdraw from the trial. So what we want really is a patient-centric hybrid approach to research. Um, and in order to do that, we really need to support the site visits too to reduce the burden across all of the, all of the participation. So patients expect to be supported in these instances too when they're actually having to visit the sites um, and that's where it's really important that we have appropriately designed and managed hybrid studies um, so that they will be successful in terms of patient experience and ultimately patient retention. So looking back at your question, thinking about your actual question, what is a hybrid study? Well a hybrid study is something that really helps the patients to participate um, whilst ensuring that we're collecting the data in the most appropriate way to ensure that we meet the endpoints for the study. And in some cases, that means that they have to visit the site. And to get a decentralised, a, a hybrid study to be working in the best possible way, we need to be providing that support across both the site visits and those visits um, and components that can be decentralised. And I think that, you know, part of this is educating um, our sites, our patients and our sponsors and CROs, all the players in the industry, because it is really exciting to talk about decentralized clinical trials. But, um, you know, hybrid solutions need to be built into that definition, um, because I think that when a lot of people hear decentralized, they think immediately remote, remote trials, remote participation. But to your point, that does not put the patient's needs at the forefront of the trial. And these hybrid solutions truly do give patients choices, leading to better patient centricity behaviors but also can reach some of these goals that DCTs are setting out to achieve. Uh, but I think there needs to be kind of a bit of a tweak in the definition to allow for this conversation of a hybrid solution. And definitely couldn't, couldn't agree more. And what are some of the key benefits that you've seen for your clients and for patients in hybrid models? So we've supported many, many clinical trials where, where clients have seen the benefit of adopting a, a patient-centric approach to hybrid studies. And we've worked, um, we've worked with those clients to support the patient regardless of where that visit is taking place. And, and as I said before, when it's planned and implemented appropriately, the support mechanism has huge benefits for patients and sites and, and, and clients as well. Um, so if clients are really serious about introducing these services and technologies to maximise recruitment and retention, we need to make sure we're widening the options available to patients to aid that participation. And as I say, that really needs to be built into the study study upfront. And um, there's benefits for patients and for sites and, and for clients. Um, with regards to patients, um, we know that typically in the US, around 5% of adult patients 
participate in, in trials, and that's even lower in the minority groups. Um, we want to make sure that we are bridging the gap between the willingness to participate because we know patients do want to participate. There's a very good um, good um, evidence that, that people feel positive about clinical research, but there is that huge gap between the willingness to participate and actual participation. Um, so benefits of hybrid studies for patients give, give patients more access to trials, access to, to, to a, a wider variety of trials. Um, obviously, you know, we've talked a little bit about the decentralized component and how we can reduce the burden of travel by having some things collected, data collected remotely, some visits done um, in the patient's home instead of uh, instead of uh, um, at the site. Um, and, you know, it really, I think that some of the challenges that some of the sites and the, the, the clients see around um, decentralized uh, solutions can be um, can be managed um, by patient education, teaching the patients how they're going to be managed throughout the study, what their points of contact are going to be, how they're going to be communicated with. Um, and technology plays a part in that, um, ensuring the continuity of care for patients as well, you know, using, using the likes of telemeds. Um, benefits for sites for a hybrid approach, it, um, you know, this this reduced clinic time for the for that they have to spend with the patients um that can give the sites some more time back for um for actually recruiting new patients supporting those patients remotely um and at the end of the day they end up with more motivated patients and patients that are likely to stay on the study because they have been um listened to and they have been um they've had the burden of, of participation reduced significantly and and for clients um there's plenty of of, of um, benefits of um, of decentralized and, and hybrid studies. Um, obviously, by by widening that patient pool um, and increasing um, the, um, the 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 options available to patients, you can see faster recruitment. Patients are going to be more likely to to want to participate, um, and you'll see fewer dropouts because they're being looked after throughout the whole of journey. And and so the retention um, challenges that you talked about in in the introduction, Laquinta. Um, are somewhat addressed um, by by the hybrid um, hybrid um, study, but also studies get completed faster, um, and that has a cost benefit to clients as well. You, you're not dropping, you're not you're not seeing the patients drop out. You're not having to extend recruitment periods. You're not having to replace patients. So there is a cost a cost side things as well to the for the clients. So the benefits are many, but we know that there's always still some hesitation. So what are some of those common reasons that? study sites and even maybe sponsors are, you know, reluctant to embrace hybrid solutions for their for their clinical trials. I think one of the main reasons is that the regulations around this um, are not clear. Um, we're, we, we live in a we work in a very highly regulated industry where there's lots of lots of rules, lots of guidelines. Um, but those um, rules and guidelines and regulations have not been really updated to reflect the changes that we've seen in trial conduct over over recent years. Um, activities such as as, as direct to pay patient shipments of, of investigational product and even telehealth that they're actually prohibited in some countries. So it's very difficult to get sponsors to want to buy into these types of uh, solutions if 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 there are um, you know reasons why they can't do it because of of, of local local laws and regulations. Um, so sponsors are you know are sometimes unwilling to take that risk in in, in an uncertain environment. We as an industry often have a fear of deviating from, from the traditional approach and not wanting to be the first to try something. Um, years ago, there was, there was well, there still is a bit of an ongoing debate around um, the use of um, bring your own device, um, uh, ECOA data collection for primary endpoint data. 
Um, and everybody steered away from doing that. They they were provisioning hundreds and hundreds of devices to send out to patients so that they could say, well, we've provisioned devices. It's not a BYOD. Um, and therefore, the data will be more readily accepted by the regulators. Um, but actually, you know, people have now done this and found that, guess what? BYOD is, is it, it, it can work. So, um, so I think that's part of, uh, again, the reluctance for the sponsors that they're, they don't want to be the first to be the ones that are, are trying out these new um, these new ideas. Um, also, it does require changes to their infrastructure within their organization. They need to make sure that they've got the right people and, and processes and, and systems to be able to, to, to manage trials in, in this way. And there's also some, some perception out there, I think, that, that you know, patients don't need or, or perhaps want this support. Um, and that may have been the case years ago, that, that patients were happy to always go to the clinic and, and do whatever the doctor says. Um, but now with social media and, and other outlets, patients really do have a voice and, and they communicate with each other. So patients know what, uh, what can be done to support them and, and they expect it. Um, and now more than ever, with, with the, you know, obviously the cost of living crisis that we're, we're facing, the tools to prevent out-of-pocket expenses, um, either by having visits taking place in the home or, or by the travel being arranged centrally and, and expenses rapidly reimbursed, will make a huge difference to patients um, and will play a big, big part in their decision to, uh, to, to participate. Um, but I think another reason, which moves me on to, on to my next point, that that that, uh, that some sponsors are reluctant to take on these uh, these types of activities, is that some sites don't want to do that. Um, so there is a reluctance at the site level as well. Um, from a mobile health perspective, um, you know, the the from a regulatory perspective, the principal investigator is required to be able to demonstrate oversight of all aspects of the study conduct conducted at their site. And they need to ensure they're delegating activities appropriately to, to qualified and experienced people. Um, and the, some, some sites are a little bit reluctant to do that. Um, you know, they don't know these HCPs that, that, that work for companies like, like MD Group. Um, and they wonder about patient care. They wonder about the data. Will the data be collected correctly? Will the data be of the right quality? Um, and so there are some concerns there over over how the patients will will be managed in addition to the regu how how the PI will ensure that they are meeting their their regulatory requirements. And and to the point that I made about the sponsor as well, um, you know, sites may sometimes think that the patients are happier to come to the sites and see them, um, but but are they really? You know, this, I did see some data presented at a conference recently by a study coordinator from a hospital in Spain. Um, which showed that there was quite a significant difference in sight and patient perspectives on things like mobile health um, visits, which was quite an interesting, uh, in interesting presentation. So really to, to, to think about how we would overcome those barriers to the point that we, we made before, it's around that communication and, and training and educating of all the stakeholders. Um, so having early discussions with, um, with the sponsors who are writing the protocols, getting them to embed that into, into the study design, um, and having those early conversations with sites as well, um, and giving the same uh, the same message to the sites around around how patients um, will have options on these studies and how how these these um, these solutions will be introduced um, as 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 a, as a treatment option from from the start and not going to be added in as a it's not just being added in as a last resort or or a, 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 an option or a contingency because of COVID. Um, that's when we'll see the real benefit of these uh, of these solutions. So, I mean, some of the the challenges that you just, just discussed, especially those around regulations, you know, it seems like that's such a big problem and there's such so much gray space there that the industry should be working to find solutions around how we can 
you know, at least get a better understanding. And I know there are organizations like DTRA, for example, like, so what kind of role are these organizations playing in addressing some of these challenges? So I think we're in we're in a better place now, and over the next couple of months and and, and well weeks and months, hopefully we will be getting some more guidelines from regulators, um, in certainly in the in in the Europe European um, countries around um, guidelines for for how to manage um, aspects of clin- of decentralized um, clinical trials. What is going to be um, covered in those is not exactly clear, but certainly things like the PI oversight, how to ensure PI oversight is is one of those topics that we know is going to be covered. Um, same around the uh, the IP shipments. Um, what's going to be allowed? When's it when's it allowed? What's uh, what's acceptable? Um, so organisations like DTRA and there's there's other other um, equivalent organisations as well. Um, what they're doing is they're bringing the the the, the experts together, um, and so we can learn from each other. And some of the uh, the initiatives and those working parties that are a part of those organisations are really um, enabling the industry to 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 share their concerns, to share their challenges um, and come up with solutions that that really do benefit the patients and the sites. Well, that'll be extremely helpful. And um, I know that, you know, if we can kind of solve those challenges, you know, so that people know that what we're doing, we can do it compliantly um, and that, you know, we're able to know exactly what's allowed and in certain countries and what's not. I mean, that that is part of the problem and that will help and go a long ways. Then another thing that you've you've touched on earlier, and um, and uh, our conversation is technology. Um, and I, I understand that you know technology is going to be a vital part of the hybrid approach for clinical research. But what types of technology do you see making the biggest impact in hybrid trials at the moment? And where do you think the future is when it comes to integrating this type of technology into into hybrid into centralized trials? So. It's it's an interest. This is a very interesting point, and and it's one we could talk about for 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 months. Um, because while technology plays a critical role, um, obviously the service elements that we've talked about are equally important. Um, the technology is vital to be able to collect and report some of those patient assessments um remotely. Um, and you know we've seen feedback from um from sites that and and from patients. Um, that this is this is a benefit to them. They found it useful. Um, I did I did see some data from um, from CScript, um, which said um, the majority of patients who were surveyed indicated that tech features like questionnaires and and text messages and video calls were, were very helpful in the course of the trials. Um, but that same uh, that same group of patients um, actually were asked about um, how much participation in clinical trials affected your general daily routine. And a third of those patients responded to say that having to use technology such as smartphones or tablets actually disrupted their day. Um, so, you know, there is that it's it's the key is finding the right balance there and making sure that 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 um, the technology is deployed um, appropriately and in conjunction with other patient related services um, and the support from the site as well. That communication with the site um, has got to be there to complement the uh, the technology. Um, it's no good giving patients, uh, you know, a link to a, a, a um, an app and telling them they'll speak to them in four weeks' time. Um, that's not going to work. That's not going to. You, that's going to be counterproductive. You're not going to see the patients being engaged. There's got to be that continuous communication between the site and the patient to 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 retain uh, that that uh, that that relationship between them. So, Caroline, so like to your point, you know, technology plays a huge role, um, but you can't remove that human aspect and it's also, you know, clearly very important that we understand what patients 
actually want, um, what they will be willing to utilize, what actually helps them in their day-to-day lives. So, you know, with that being said, how, how do we approach creating hybrid protocols that allow us to take this feedback from patients um, and use their voices to take action to meet their needs? Um, so, yes, you, you've hit the nail on the head there, LaQuinta. Um, we really have to get smarter at listening to patients um, and what they're willing to do in the interest of medical research. Um, clinical trials are an option for patients, a treatment option for patients, um, and we want to make sure that it's a, it's a viable option and that those trials are as attractive as possible for, for patients. Um, as we just talked about, we should be in a position um, within the coming months to, to be able to take on board some of the guidance from the regulatory authorities when we get the new recommendations from the EMA. Um, so that should give us a, a, a sort of a, a backbone as to what we can and can't do um, with, with patients and, and uh, in this hybrid approach. Um, but one thing that we really have to look at um, is, is trial complexity. So the so complexity of trials has, has really increased um, and we're now able to collect more data than ever before. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about some of the technology. There's, you know, all the wearables that are out there that give us options to collect data that we were never able to collect in, in the traditional, uh, traditional uh, way of doing clinical research. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we should or, in fact, need to collect that data. Um, I think, you know, sponsors have a responsibility to be carefully reviewing their endpoints and the schedules of assessments to determine if the data is is really needed in in, in their um, quest to prove the safety and efficacy of of, of their drug, or if it's just a a nice to have, something that they can report on later on. Um, And also looking at the frequency of assessments and the frequency of visits, um, you know, does it make sense? Is is it really necessary? Um, So overall, we've got to to ask the question of, does the benefit of collecting that data outweigh the inconvenience to the patient? and once we've determined what those assessments need to be and how often they should be, there should be real consideration as to, to um, where and how those assessments are conducted. Um, and this is what's key. Um, all patients have different needs. Um, the patient population, it's not a one size fits all. We, we've talked, talked about that previously. Um, it, we need to be looking at the patients as individuals. We need to be looking at the indications and the comorbidities that those patients have that can impact their ability to visit clinics or, or their appetite for visits to take place in their home. You know, we have to also consider that, you know, some patients will embrace mobile home, um, mobile visits, but some patients won't want a stranger to come into their home or, or won't want medical uh, um, professionals being seen by neighbours coming and coming and going. Um, and whilst discretion, you know, is always something that we can uh, we can um, employ into clinical trials, some patients just might prefer to go to the clinic, and and that's where we tend to fail patients. Um, we said at the start around around um, you know the fact that uh, the retention has always been an issue on trials, um, and that has both a time and a financial implication for for for, for um, clients. Um, but we have been notoriously bad at supporting patients getting to and from the sites. Um, and so, you know, this in, in, in this day and age, we really just need to need to give them the options. We need to give them choices on how they participate and support them regardless of, of, of how they decide. Um, I mentioned before about the, um, the, the C-Script survey that it was conducted last year um, and that actually collected data on um, on areas that are most likely to mean patients complete studies. Um, and the, the majority of the top 10 responses were, were related to the types of things that we've been talking about already today with regards to hybrid, uh, hybrid studies. So having flexible study visits from a timing and a location perspective, 
reimbursing expenses, home visits, stipends, transportation and support generally with visit logistics. Um, so, you know, that to me is, 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 you know, that's great data that they've collected from, from, from thousands of patients who've participated in studies. And, and that gives us a real good um, baseline for how we should be um, taking that, t- taking the trials and, and, and designing them with patient feedback in mind. Interestingly, though, there was there was one thing that did come out of that survey that that I did find uh, find find fascinating that there were were quite a few differences between responses in the US compared to patients in in Europe, um, and patients in Europe were actually less satisfied with the change to virtual visits, um, and um, they didn't uh, they didn't speak so favorably about the reduced number of in person visits, and they were also less likely to use video conferencing with their doctor or to use apps on their smartphones. So that's another thing that we need to be thinking about when we're looking at how we design and manage our patients through 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 their through their journey is is you know is it right for that patient in that location is culturally is this going to be acceptable um so there's a lot of a lot of things that we need to be it's definitely not a one size fits all right i think that that's you just hit the nail on the head it's not a one size fits all and we can't look at kind of study design in in that way um there could be different strategies for different countries within the, the study um, based on what their patients want to see. But now, Caroline, so you live and breathe this every day. So can you give us some examples um, on some examples of hybrid trials that you've worked on at MT Group that demonstrate kind of the power of the hybrid touch, um, how it, you know, address some of these challenges and barriers we've talked about today to um, provide better outcomes for the patients? Yeah, so so there's there's one good example that springs to mind. We were working on a on a study in the US. It was a rare disease study, and the patients had significant mobility issues. Um, the patients, as I say, were recruited from all over um, from all over the US, but they had to be treated by one central clinic, um, and so um, they were required to be close to the, the that clinic for 25 days during the treatment and, and initial follow up phase due to the assessments required. Um, and that's obviously a huge commitment for the patients and their caregivers. Um, but the client was 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 really good and wanted to reduce the burden as much as possible um, and engage with us to support them on every stage of the journey. Um, so we were given um, information. We, we worked with the, the, the patients to find out their individual requirements. Um, we developed bespoke um, individual travel plans based on their specific mobility and, and other requirements. So we really listened to the patients and their caregivers to understand what they needed um, and um, developed uh, developed plans to met, that meant that that long stay away from their home was as straightforward as, as, pos- as it could possibly be. Um, and because of that huge commitment for those 25 days during the, the treatment and follow up for the, for the other visits on, on the study, the client was really keen to make things as, as easy as possible um, and as, as low burden for the patient as, as, it, as it could be. Um, and so they designed the study such that those visits could take place in the patient's home, um, which obviously reduced the need for, for, for them to travel multiple times. Um, as I said, these were, were patients with, with significant mobility and, and, and other issues as well, which meant that that travel was not, uh, not something that could be easily undertaken. Um, so, um, you know, MD Group was, it was, was um, in a great position here because we were obviously able to provide both the, uh, both the travel um, and concierge um, accommodation services, um, as well as the mobile health side of things. Um, so for those mobile visits, we, we recruited HCPs um, and trained them, obviously. We, we um, made sure that they were, 
were able to to collect some of the um the more complex um aspects of the study there was a very um very complex blood sampling was required on this study and and numerous labs involved um and we wanted to make sure obviously that that no data was lost we wanted to to make sure that everything could be done in, in one visit so um we spent a lot of time ensuring that that was going to be the case and also that the patients were aware of what was going to be happening at those visits um, that they were aware of how long the nurse was going to be in the home, that they that they knew exactly what the nurse was going to be doing and what was required of them. Um, and, you know, this this really was a very good um, strategy that the client introduced because um, we were able to do the screening visits in the home, um, which meant we were able to um, identify patients who were screen failures um, at an earlier stage and spared them the inconvenience of, of the long distance travel only to find out that they weren't then um, eligible for the for the study. Um, and after the patients were discharged from, from, from the clinic and sent home, um, follow-up visits were, were, were conducted um, again in the home um, by the same nurses that had done the screening visits. Um, and um, to ensure the continuity of care there, we actually used a telemed solution there to the site staff joined those visits as well. Um, so that the patients were, were, were seeing um, familiar faces and there was consistency in, in the way that the patients were cared for and managed. Um, so, so you know, as I say, our team was able to manage the the, the on-site and and the at-home uh, logistics with a single team, um, and that was really reassuring for the patients. Um, to the point I made before about keeping patients informed um, and communicating with them, and um, that was something that our team were doing on a, on a regular basis, making sure that the patients understood exactly what was going to be happening. There was no surprises, and they knew what needed to be done, they knew what was expected of them, and they knew what was going to be happening around them. Um, and having this uh, this contact, um, it did result in some very positive feedback from both the sites and the patients. Um, considering how high um, burden this study was with the 25 days away from home and the significant um, uh, assessments and complex assessments that were done in screening and follow up, um, the patients actually all said that they were happy to have participated in the study. Um, and the client attributed that to the interactions that our team had with the patients for both the remote and the on-site components of the study. And I think that really, that in itself really demonstrates the impact that, that a properly managed hybrid strategy can have on, on, on a study. That's a great example, Caroline, of how a protocol design or a, a, a trial design was built around the patient's needs. So like, obviously it was a complex protocol, but you looked at the sponsor considered how they could make the patient's lives as easy as possible in light of those complexities and created a bespoke solution that really um, took care of all of those specific needs and challenges. Um, and it's just a great example of how you can do that for pretty much any study, especially ones that are less complex. But um, thank you for sharing that example with us. So today's conversation has been absolutely amazing. And I think that we could talk um, for another hour on the benefits of hybrid trials and go into even more examples. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me um, today, Caroline, and, and joining the podcast. Uh, where can people connect with you, Caroline, to have more conversations about this approach? Okay. Um, well, yes. Thank you, LaQuinta. And, and obviously, yes, I'd be very happy to, uh, to connect with anybody um, who would like to continue these discussions. Um, I'm obviously on LinkedIn. Um, and additionally, I will be presenting at Scope in Orlando on Wednesday, the 8th of February. Um, I'll be talking about um, achieving the impossible, um, maximizing patient experience and data quality in a complex rare disease program. 
Um, so I look forward to connecting with, with some of you there um, to continue some of these discussions. Thanks, Caroline. And for everyone out there, if you've enjoyed our conversation today, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening as it helps other people like you who are committed to driving industry change find us. For more content around key issues in the clinical research industry, like Caroline said, you can follow us on social media. We're um, at MD Group International on Twitter. You can find us on LinkedIn by searching MD Group, or please feel free to visit our blog at mdgroup.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. And until next time, be well.